0: I know that you guys are probably feeling it, too. So uh, so what are we preaching on? The parables. <laughs> hey, hey what, are the, what are the parables about? I say it every week. So last week we preached on the king. Our la- yeah, last semester. And then this semester we're going to preach on the kingdom. That's right. But the parables are tricky, though, uh, because as we have said, uh, I want you to keep this intention. Context is king in a lot of ways, and it and it brings in, it's like a key that unlocks the true meaning um, in a lot of these parables. And so, but what's really key is right where the parables start is at the height of opposition against who Jesus is. And so for ton, tonight, it's kind of interesting, right? Because, my gosh, we're we're making some headway, to be honest. We started in early Luke, and we're at Luke 18, Um And before Luke 18, it says this um, in verse 11, it says, on the way to Jerusalem. Now you'd be like, well, what's the importance of that? Why does that matter? Well, this is the third time where it says that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, because his whole ministry has been really culminating to this point where he is murdered, unrighteously and unjustly so, as an innocent man, and he is put on trial Uh, and wrongfully convicted of something that he was not guilty of. And so three times in the book of Luke, it says that he was on his way to Jerusalem. This is the third and the climactic point that Jesus is on his way to fulfill his destiny, right? And so there's this weird tension in the Bible where um, it says in Acts chapter 2 that lawless men killed him. And it also says that it was in the foreknowledge of God to send his son and to die, on behalf of people, on behalf of sinners, on behalf of those who recognize that we fall deeply short of the perfect standard that God sets. But that is what is so good about Christianity. That is actually the good news. And so, uh, and so these parables, they are revealing this kingdom that he brings as he pierces into this world as the one who is other, the one who is above the line of creation, who is wholly other, entered into this horizon and this plane to reveal both God and his plan and the deep parts of our hearts that cannot fully envelop and understand this world and our own failure and our own sin. Um, There's no better word for it. So sin is a Christian word, but I want to redeem it because we need to know what that is. Um, It is a word that we need to wrestle with. And then we get Um, this parable, but before we do, it is quite literally the coming of the kingdom. And it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered to them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And of course, we know the Pharisees, they're still missing it, right? All of scripture, the law and the prophets are pointed to Jesus. And then um, we kind of get this interesting parable about a persistent widow. And so I'm going to turn now to Luke chapter 18. Do we have it or no? Do we not have it? That's okay. So if you have a Bible with you or maybe a Bible app, um, or you can pay attention to the words. I, I try to read reflexively on, on how I think it w- would be read. And so maybe you could pay attention to those, uh, those words as they're spoken. But it's not very long. It's just verses one uh, through eight. So it's pretty short, but it's packed with, with beautiful truth. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and this is the word of the Lord. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, though I neither fear God or, nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge, judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray um, for the reading and the preaching of your very word. Would you hold true to your promise, Lord, that it would never go out and return empty? Uh, That you would be attached to your word as it is to your character, that your very speech is your verbiage, that whenever you say, things happen. Lord, allow that to be true this evening. Allow um, the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing to you and the words that come from my mouth to be pleasing to you, Lord. Allow me to submit to your word as I preach it. I pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So after I uh, graduated Mizzou, um, this has a little bit to do with this, but, you know, coming out of drugs and alcohol uh, and only being sober for about a year uh, and then and then going to St. Louis to go to seminary. Um, we had this project in seminary, and, and the project was pretty simple. Um, there was a few people that were older in this particular class called Educational Foundations, and a, and a guy named Ben Tharp was in there. And, uh, and Ben was at Covenant Presbyterian Church at the time. And uh, and this was real early on. This is like in 2015. And so uh, and one of the projects were if anybody is in a current ministry, they wanted they wanted two other people to come and observe that ministry. And so what I did is I came and I observed the youth ministry. Whoop whoop. <laughs> uh, whoop, whoop. <laughs> uh, this really is the beginning of the beginning stories for me uh, with some of the students in here. And uh, and I remember that I actually observed a D group. Uh, that he led, and I'll never remember, uh, never forget a guy named James Banks, um, <laughs> a guy that I particularly took interest to. And after I sat through that uh, little D group, you know, I, I took Ben to the side. I said, "Hey, man, this is awesome." I said, "I would love to be a part of whatever's going on here." And he said, "Well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to start coming to church here." And I said, that makes a lot of sense. So I actually, um, I bounced around a little bit, um, but it was still within the first four or five months. So I started to faithfully attend Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Um, and I take pride in this because for those of you who know, there was like an interim pastor and I came in whenever the interim youth pastor was there. And then they called a guy named Greg Meyer, right? And I still have this over him to this day, if you're listening, Greg, that I was there before him. Right. A lot of people don't realize that. But I was there before Greg. But it was funny because we, we were very paralleled. And so and I was just observing from the back going to some Sunday schools. I was not even a, an official volunteer. But then whenever Greg came in, um, he was like, who's that weird guy in the back? You know, and uh, and it was me. And he's like, hey, do you want to like officially volunteer here? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I've been waiting on. And so I became an official volunteer and, uh, I, and, then, and then that's whenever Emily also came in. So that's how I met my wife. My wife was a paid uh, female volunteer at the same youth group. And, um, and of course, like that happened later. But at the first, like, I don't know, six months to a year, um, I was serving faithfully. I was like a glorified volunteer. I was all in, <laughs> right? I loved it. I was all in. I was very faithful. Um, and so there came an opportunity to be the youth intern. And which is a paid position while you're in seminary. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Um, and I was convinced that I was a natural dial-in, right? I was, I was the natural slam dunk for this position, considering I was there whenever Greg got there. Um, a little bit of entitlement, obviously, is coming out, and I want you to feel that. A little bit of, like, I'm, I'm the obvious choice came out. Um, and so I ended up applying to be the youth intern. Um, and sure enough, throughout the application process, uh, about a week later, I found out that I was passed over. Uh, for this position. In fact, that's why I hated RUF. Um, because, fun fact actually about RUF, is like he, they hired an RUF guy, um, like a guy who was coming out of the internship. And I was like, who's this guy? All right. Um, and so I was, I was feeling it. I was feeling like the crush and the blow. And, um, and here's the point. If you're anything like me, um, we can often think that we deserve something. And when we don't get that thing, we are prone to discouragement or even despair Um, and whenever we're discouraged or despair, we're also tempted to give up. Um, Sometimes give up on God, potentially, give up on his goodness. Do you think I was questioning his goodness? Maybe. Maybe not. Because he didn't give me what I wanted. Whenever I truly thought that that's what I deserved at the time, it made the most sense to me, (laughs) right? So he can't truly be good in this, and, and so we often turn to ourselves right? Like, I deserve this. Look at the record. I was, I was all in. It only makes sense, right? And so without even realizing it, I moved into a position of works righteousness. I moved into a position, a position of entitlement with my Lord. Um, and so we rest in our own ability uh, to get independent from God, and that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen quickly. It happens slowly, right? Um, I often give this illustration, and it it lands with a lot of us because it's true. Whenever you first speed, you don't just go 87. You start at 72, right? You're like, well, I've done that for a while, and then you go 74. Then you go 78. You go 82 on the highway. You get up to 87. Now you get pulled over. And then the law comes down and hits you, and you're like, holy smokes, what am I doing? I have veered so far away. But it took the law coming down and reminding us of what the standard is. There's another example of this with Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham a son, right? This is so key to Genesis chapter 12, verses uh, one through, this is literally so good, I'm gonna read it because it's so foundational to the Bible. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in verse 15, he enters into a covenant with Abraham, right? And he tells him that you will have a son. He says, he says behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And what do we get a couple chapters later in verse, or in, uh, in chapter 15, literally the next chapter? Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go, uh, go into my servant, that it may be that we shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, she took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham. Does that sound familiar? Adam took the fruit and gave it, or Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. So whenever we have human beings taking and defining good and evil for themselves, it always reaps havoc, always, always. You don't use that language a lot in the Bible. It always does. Because instead of remaining true and believing in God to define good and evil and us be good co-heirs of reigning in that righteousness, we said, no thanks, pluck, I will define good and evil. This is good to the eye. So he takes and he gives. And so in a similar way, they also distrusted God's promises, didn't they? Right? God clearly promised a son. The next chapter, she said, we got to take matters into our own hands. He is untrustworthy God is not good, and we have to take matters into our own hands because we, we fall into the temptation of despair and, incur- and, and discouragement because we're limited. We have a limited perspective, and so we think that God doesn't have this, this good plan for my life, and, if, and, and I've prayed to him, and I've asked, and these things aren't happening in my time, so it must mean that it can't be good, and he's not waiting to give me something better. So we take things into our own hands. And so I wonder, again, if this is similar for us today, and I think, I think for a lot of us it is. I know it is for me at times in my sanctification. Maybe for us, we struggle with faith in Christianity, so our default is to take matters into our own hands, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and to make things happen for ourselves, right? Maybe this is because we either don't believe in God truly or we simply do not trust that he is trustworthy, that he is truly good, that in an eternal mindset, he actually has the very best for you. We are more comfortable with taking control of our own lives because it is this attempt to orchestrate these desired outcomes by any means necessary. Maybe for others of us, we're similar to Abraham in that we profess that we believe and we trust God, but when God is not on our timetable, we begin to give up our faith and we begin to move away from God, kind of like the speeding analogy. We don't really pray anymore. We, we may go to Christian things, but we're not doing things that actually develop a relationship with a living and true God, right? Maybe we think we deserve something, kind of like me. Maybe we think we deserve a romantic relationship or a particular job or a promotion or a scholarship or a bigger scholarship, or a better grade in a certain class uh, with teachers that are frustrating. Maybe more results in something that you've been working really hard on and you've sacrificed a lot on. Maybe God's favor through how we want to be blessed. And when God doesn't answer our prayers in a timely manner or the way that we ask, we begin to stop praying altogether. What's the use, right? He didn't give me what I wanted. He's obviously a father who doesn't care. And so we just stop praying. Whatever it may be for you and wherever you find your heart in reference to God um, and wherever you find yourself this evening, we've all struggled to believe in God. We've all struggled to trust that he is good. This is at the heart of the fall. It's a reality. We need to name that out loud to each other. Um, So we've all struggled with these things and we've all struggled not to give up in the discouragement and the despair that often arises in a fallen world. I think if I had you raise your hand, if you've ever, you know, if you've ever experienced discouragement or despair, every hand would go up because that's what you experience in a world that's been wrought with sin. That's what you experience in a world that is in rebellion against the creator. That doesn't mean it's all bad. It doesn't mean it's as bad as it could be. It just means that there is something wrong and God has to do something to make it right. And so the big question is, is why is it so hard to trust God? And not give up Why is it so hard to, to trust God and not give up? Well, this passage encourages us to trust and to never give up in three primary ways: uh, one, the perseverance of prayer; two, the persistent widow's plea; and three, the, the patience of God. So the perseverance of prayer, the persistence of the, widow, the widow's plea, and the patience of God. So we're going to look at those three now. So the perseverance of prayer. In verse 1, Luke begins in a unique fashion. You may ask, well, how does he do that? Well, he grants the reader the meaning of the parable before we read it. And we know that that's really unique in a parable, isn't it? Because the meaning is always usually hidden. And so what does verse 1 say? It says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so why does he do that? Well, we talked about it briefly, but in the passage before ours, Jesus taught that he is going to come again. That This is what's called the parousia. It's the Greek word that Jesus not only came, right, to live and to die uh, of the death that we deserve and to be raised from the dead, but he promises that he will return to make all things right. So in the meantime, we ought to long for that day. As Christians, in the meantime, we ought to long for that day and to expect it, to be ready But how? What does this look like? Well, Luke tells us right off the bat, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. What does it mean to always pray? Does that mean that we pray every second of every day? We don't do anything else? Of course not. That's unrealistic. The Bible's not unrealistic. The Bible's talking about real realities on the ground. But Luke is calling those who believe and trust in Christ to make prayer a consistent, regular part of their daily lives. Luke 21, just a couple of chapters after this, 36, captures what Luke has in mind here. He says this, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Luke is capturing the reality that prayer is not simply a duty but a confession. What do I mean by that? One author put it this way, prayer is fundamentally not a duty, but a confession that strength comes from the Lord, that disciples cannot make it on their own, that they need grace every second of every day. It's the moment by moment grace that Francis Schaeffer talks about. It is not just a duty. It's a confession about a Lord, a Lord that is in control of your life a Lord that enables us by his grace and mercy to be able to deal with the brokenness that we encounter in this world, which we know is really, really difficult and spread very wide. And so if this is true, why is it so hard for us to come to God in prayer, right? If this is true, why is it so hard for us to come? Now there's a billion reasons, but I focus on three. Distractions, right? Number one, distractions. I think even um, our brother from Crew talked about this a little bit, but in our fast-paced, productive-focused culture, it's really hard to slow down and pray. It is really hard to find the space to slow down and pray. In fact, it's, un- it's uncomfortable, right? Because there's so many other things that we could be doing to be productive, right? Because culture tells us that this is the way we ought to function, and we submit to that a cultural authority, And so it's really hard. It's uncomfortable to slow down. Uh, uh, Kind of with the same vein of distractions as entertainment. We are constantly being entertained. So whenever we're not working, we are so used to somehow keeping our brain busy, whether it be Netflix or the internet or video games or our cell phones um, or working out, right? We turn our free time into busy free time. Because we are exhausted at the fast-paced movement of life and these high expectations that are placed upon us by our American culture, we veg out, we numb, we escape, and we survive. And so slowing down and praying is uncomfortable. Two, secondly, is cynicism, right? We value accomplishment. We value intellect. We value um, competency and we value money and wealth. And since we can do life, for the most part, without God, as, you, as, as we've seen over and over, at least from our perspective, right? just because you don't think God is working in your life doesn't mean he's not. <laughs> That's called common grace. <laughs> um, and he, there's a lot of that in my life, too. And since we can do life without God, praying often seems unnecessary. right? Why would I just say something that an all-sovereign, knowing God knows anyway? Right? It seems like a waste of time. But think about who you are culturally. You're somebody who's in an individualistic culture who who values certain things like what we just talked about. And guess what? Money or trust in ourselves oftentimes does what prayer does much more efficiently. It's quicker, it's less time consuming. It's efficient. Thirdly, it's odd. It's weird. Only crazy people talk to themselves, especially out loud. How can we talk to someone who doesn't respond? Right? It's one thing to talk to somebody and we get a response back. And if God does respond, how do we know it's him? And not our own rambling thoughts. It's confusing. It's weird. It's odd. It's uncomfortable. But it's for the weak and it's for the powerless. That's what we think is for the weak and for the powerless. And so it's like, I don't need that. Prayer is hard because we often don't believe God is truly there and truly inviting you into a relationship with Him. And if He is real, he's probably, He probably doesn't care enough, right, to make any difference. Or we pray all the time and still feel distant from Him because it's more results-oriented instead of relationship-oriented. We want to know what God can do for us, and it becomes about our perspective and our limited view. And so we come to God with specific requests, and then whenever He doesn't answer them, we don't pray anymore right? Let me give you an image of this. I got a couple images about my son tonight, but so my son David, right, um, as, a, as a father, he comes to me um, and he's messy, you know, like he's two, but this, this makes it even more vibrant. He says, da that play ball, you know? I'm like, I know what he's saying. da that play ball? You want to go outside and play baseball, right? So there's not some formula that you have to meet in order to be in relationship with your father, You don't have to be perfect. In fact, how you get better at something is you do it, and and you're messy. That's what David's doing. He's being messy. But you know what? I don't care. Do you think I think about the way that he's communicating to me? No. You know what I love? That my image bears coming to me, and he wants to be in relationship. He literally just wants to spend time with me. It doesn't matter what he says. It does not matter. It doesn't matter if we have ourselves put together. God wants us to come to him just the way that we are. Becoming a father made me realize this. I don't care how my son comes to me. He doesn't need to have himself put together. He can be unorganized. He can be messy. He can be childlike because he is a child and so are you. You're a child of God. Just like David comes to me as my child, not afraid of being messy or getting it right, he simply comes to me in relationship and he talks Dad, dad, door, play ball? Yes. Yes. I would love to play ball with you. So Paul tells us the meaning of the parable before the parable. And it says we ought to always pray and not lose heart. And then he gives us the short parable. And this gets me to my second point, the persistent widow's plea. So we're going to reread it so that we have it fresh in our mind. So I'm going to read verses two through five. It's short. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in this city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. First, it's noteworthy that something's repeated. Okay, I want you to notice this about being a good reader of the text. Whenever something's repeated, it's, it's an emphasis. So, what's repeated? He neither feared God nor respected man. So, why might that be important? Well, first and foremost, first and foremost, from the laws perspective, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God calls upon judges to rule justly with their authority and their power that's given to them by God in Leviticus nineteen. 15, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. God values integrity. But since the judge does not fear God, right? It clearly says that that means he will not respect people. Those things go hand in hand, especially the poor, right? A judge like this will do things for a bribery because his authority is something else other than God. So he'll do it for money. But he won't care for the poor, the outcast, the disadvantaged. And guess who's the prime example of the poor, outcast, disadvantaged? Is the widow. She's the primary example in this context, in this culture, about that. Secondly, Exodus 22, 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow. And in Deuteronomy 27, 19, it calls a curse upon any who pervert the justice that a widow rightly deserves. A widow has rights in the court of law, which he does not give her. Therefore, since the judge does not fear God, nor does he respect people, he doesn't care about what the Torah requires, obviously, right? In fact, the word for respect here can actually be translated, he is not ashamed before people. Now, I'll say, I've said this many times, but hear what I'm saying, this is sufficient for faith and life and relationship with Yahweh. I will say, throughout the many generations, we've lost some nuance and some things from the original, and that's what I'm going to bring out for you right now. In this shame and honor culture, whenever it says that he didn't care about bringing shame, he's not ashamed before people. That means there's no honor left in him, in this judge, especially in a shame and honor culture where people would say, shame on you, right? And that would have a direct effect on him and his family. This is the man who the widow is approaching for justice. I want you to see I painted this picture because I want you to see how obviously miscalculated this is whenever the widow gets to him. But what happens? Right Secondly, we have the widow. In the Old Testament, this is often a, a symbol, as we talked about, as the innocent, the powerless though oppressed. And it is this widow who persistently and repeatedly petitions and petitions and petitions for justice. In this context, the widow would have been completely hopeless because she didn't have anyone to help her or to advocate on her behalf. Most widows in this culture would bring a man with her because, right, culturally, okay, I'm just saying, woman doesn't have any right to speak in this culture. So she was coming alone without an advocate, without another male in the family or an advocate of any kind. She's coming by herself to this corrupt judge. I want you to see it. I hope you're seeing it. Because I want that to hit. One author put it this way. The widow was too weak to compel and too poor to buy justice. She neither had a protector to coerce nor money to bribe. The widow is a defenseless woman in a man's world culturally without money or powerful friends. And as we just saw, the judge cannot be appealed to out of the duty of God. For God's sakes, man. Quite literally. For God's sakes, give this woman justice. He does not care. He does not fear God. He does not fear man. You can't even appeal to his duty before a living God. Wow, this doesn't look good for her. (laughs) It doesn't look good at all. But what happens? The widow, she kept coming to him, petitioning him for justice, and the judge refused her request over and over for a while. But in verse 5, it says, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So why does she receive justice? The widow receives justice because of her persistent plea, her persistent petition to an unjust judge. He relents and decides to give her justice because he doesn't want to be beat down. It's more of a selfish reason, meaning her continual persistence day after day is wearing him out. He's getting annoyed. And it would just be far easier if he would just grant her request. So here's a key question you have to ask yourselves because this is where some will go. So... David, I heard you. I heard you loud and clear, brother. Makes a lot of sense. The parable's teaching that God is the judge and we are to torture God until he gives us exactly what we want. Right? <laughs> That's it, right? God is like the judge and we must continually petition him before he finally hears our requests and answers them. No. Most certainly not. Which leads me to my final point. The patience of God. So if the parable isn't teaching that God is like the judge and that we must continually petition him before he hears or answers our request, what is it about? Well, read verses six through eight with me. It says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It's a quote from Revelation, by the way. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes, will he find f- faith on earth? Jesus actually ends the parable. So this is a really weird parable because it actually starts with the hermeneutical uh, like statement, which is like, how do we know what it means? Well, it starts with... It's like, it's like what they teach in the English class. Do they still teach you to start with a topical sentence? <laughs> and then tell what the, rest of the, what the rest of the paragraph is going to be about. He's doing some basic literary stuff here. He starts with the topical sentence, gives us an illustration of that, and then Jesus applies it. He ends the parable by applying it to his specific audience. But this specific thing is called the lesser to the greater. What do I mean by that? This particular literary device is the lesser to greater argument. It means that if this unrighteous judge who despises God, who hates people, granted justice just because he was asked repeatedly, how much more then will God, a righteous justice and a most gracious, patient heavenly Father, hear the requests and answer them? So it's not God is like the judge. It is in fact, how much more so will a heavenly Father do so for his children? He wants you to see the point. That's why I painted the picture in the first point, for you to really see the chances of this widow were really not looking good. God is not like the judge. He is not reluctant to give. In fact, he wants and longs to give to his children. Even still, the parable does teach that we are to cry out to the Lord day and night for justice. What's a beautiful example of this? Psalm 17, David cries out for justice. I wish I could read the whole thing, but here's just a little bit. I call upon you, for you will answer me, God. Listen closely to me and hear my prayer. Show forth your gracious love. Save those who take refuge in you. For those who rebel against your sovereign power, dot, dot, dot. Wow. Isn't it inspiring how David has such confidence between, uh, before a holy and righteous God? It's because he's in relationship. He comes to God and he says things. Listen closely to me and hear my prayer. Do we cry out for justice like David does in the Psalms? Are we as bold as David whenever we talk to God? Not disrespectfully. We don't come to a holy God disrespectfully, but we come bold in a relationship, not for a result. We are called to cry out to God and to continue to voice our desire for justice and righteousness to reign and for the coming of his kingdom, hence the Lord's prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's why we start there. We do this because God is not like the unjust judge. We do it specifically because it is the lesser to greater argument. We do it because he is the righteous, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, patient Heavenly Father, pouring out his love in eternity to a son through the Spirit to share it with us. That is the God that we worship. He is not an unjust judge. Earlier, I told you about me not getting that youth internship and feeling the entitlement and being put in my place by God because of my limited perspective. What I didn't mention is what happened next. So after, after I actually ended up not getting the job, I actually met with, uh, with Greg or with the youth pastor, um, and he was extremely gracious uh, to me, and he explained exactly why I didn't get it. Um, and that was very kind of him to do. Um, in fact, he loved me really well in that moment. Um, and then, about a month, month and a half later, there's something that uh, came out, and I had I've heard of it before, forgot about it uh, because there's only been one before. Um, but then there is an opportunity called the Harris Pastoral Internship at Covenant. Harris was named after uh, Deanne Harris, who gave f- like fifty thousand um, dollars in order to pay pastoral people going into the pastorate um, to train them in the whole entirety of the church, and so guess what I did? (laughs) I applied for the Harris Pastoral Internship, um, and I got it. Um, And the reason why they said that I got it was because they felt like the internship would help me the most out of everybody else because of my background not being in the church. And so I got it. Um, And then guess what happened? In the second semester, uh, they challenged me to cast a vision for a seasonal college ministry, which means everybody that was here at Mizzou, would come home, and then we would have a college ministry for them whenever they came home. And I cast a vision for that, and that is where my heart began for college students. And then what happened, right? I did. I got called to go to youth ministry in Alabama, but God always knew that I would come here and that he was preparing me for something so much more and so much bigger than I could have ever imagined because I was limited, right? My perspective was limited, God calls us to always pray. That story is not about my glory. That story is about God's being patient with me in the midst of my entitlement. That is a story about God's grace in the midst of me feeling like I was more than I actually am. And Him saying, Dear, dear son, I actually have something else for you that's better. Um, and my plan, not yours. Don't give up, don't lose heart. God's timing is different than ours. And the way that he answers our prayers may not necessarily look like what we thought it would whenever we do pray. Let me give you an example of this. Think about if my, David, if, if my son David um, asked me um, to get married right now, right? That would be kind of a weird prayer request for a two-year-old, right? Right, but what if he asked me, he goes, Dada, wife, dada, wife, Right? Dad, that wife, and not talking about my wife being his mother, but if he said, Dad, that wife, it's not that I'm, I'm saying you can't have it, period, and I'm evil, and, and I'm, I want to take any chance of love from you in this world. It just means where he's at currently, he's not ready for that. But from his perspective, daddy, wife? Daddy, cookie? Think about it. Think about it, though. Think about it. That's our perspective compared to God's. And so, and, and even so much more, right? Because every, every illustration breaks down. But it's like, it's like or, or David coming to me and asking for wisdom. It's not that I'm not going to answer that, but there's certain things that has to happen as he grows for him to be instilled in wisdom. I have to put him in certain situations and I have to trust that he will obey me from the way that he was taught. And then wherever he gets placed in that position, will he go into what he was taught? And will he grow in wisdom? Well, that's up to him. Just like the Heavenly Father, where we come to him and we pray, he's going to give us situations, he's going to give us things and say, well, here's the situation you asked for, how are you going to respond? But I think that illustration really does hit home whenever David will ask for a wife or for wisdom it's not that I'm not answering his question or his, or his request. I hold it in tension. We need to move away from God saying yes and no all the time, and we need to hold it in tension because the Bible does. In one sense, David's request will be answered soon. From my perspective, as a father, that boy's going to grow up quick. Think about God's perspective. Holy smokes. You know, it's like, you know, like it will be answered soon. From his perspective, it will not. Be answered soon. Will he trust? Will he trust me in the process? Live in the tension. The Bible brings out tensions with God and being in relationship with an eternal Father. That our limited creatureliness, we get really fidgety. We get really impatient. But God's speed is different than ours. You notice that it was a walk in the garden? It was a three mile per hour walk. We're running. Slow down, child. I'm working. I have always been working for you. He loves you. He delightens you. He delights in you. He proved that through his son Jesus. It was like a video. It was like a trailer to say, look how much I love you. Look, Look at what I did through my son. This is how much I love you, and this is what's going to project you into the world to be the change and to be the restorative power that I have died for. And so we always do that praying that we do not lose hope because God's promise of ultimate justice for those who believe and trust in him are yes and amen in Christ. You are dearly beloved children of his. He is not holding out on you. He's not evil. He doesn't want the worst for you. He wants you to hold on and say, Daddy, I trust you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for uh, the image of a a Heavenly Father who truly delights in, in their children. And thank you for this parable that teaches that you are not like the unjust judge who, through nagging, gives, but you are like a just, patient, righteous judge and heavenly father who wants to give, and you want to give good gifts. But your timing is perfect and ours is not. Lord, help us to trust in your timing, knowing that you are truly good and truly working for our best in this life. Father, help us to live in that reality. We pray this in the strong and holy name of your righteous son. Amen. Music team, if you'll come back up and close us out, I think the mic is down there. <laughs> <laughs>